Hello, and welcome back to your favorite summer sipper, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Jason Sieber, the associate conductor of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Stephanie Brimhall, education manager. Today, we are going to get the chance to talk to one of our favorite and most essential unsung heroes here at the Kansas City Symphony, our principal orchestra librarian, Elena lenz Tally. And for the musicians and staff at the symphony, Elena is someone whose unique wisdom and skill set we rely on literally every day, even now when we're not able to play concerts. She is an essential partner in every facet of everything we're doing from programming all the way up to the performance itself. Uh, When you see her carry scores on stage for a concert, that's literally the final step in a workflow that spans weeks months, or even years for every single performance that we do. That's right. And as a symphony musician, literally hundreds of individual pieces of music come across my music stand over the course of every season. And just multiply that by 80 musicians of the symphony who all need their parts as well. You're talking about thousands and thousands of printed parts that need to be acquired from elsewhere or retrieved from our own library marked with Boeings or other indications like cuts, articulations, dynamics. They often need pages rebound or repaired. And then finally, they need, they need to be distributed to the musicians and retrieved from musicians after the performances are done and returned to the publishers or our stacks. Uh, and that's really only one part of Elena's job. You know what I think is so cool? She's an absolute walking encyclopedia of all things music related. And on those occasions when there's something she doesn't know offhand, she knows all the right places to find some of the most essential yet obscure and uh, pieces of information. And if you need to know how many trombones there are in the Verdi Requiem, she knows. If you need to know which company publishes Shostakovich's 13th Symphony, she knows. If you need to know the last time we played Stravinsky's Firebird Suite and with what conductor and what else was on the program and what the weather was that day, yeah, she knows that too. (laughs) So we'll be talking a lot about Elena today since she's here with us, but we actually have two wonderful librarians in our orchestra. And of course, we would be remiss not to mention Fabrice Curtis. Fabrice and Elena together pull off a Herculean task every season, uh, but it's really much more than that. They are both full-fledged musicians in every sense. They coincidentally are both clarinet players, although it's not a requirement to have two clarinet players as your librarians, but I think it should be. Uh, They each still play and perform. Uh, They both possess great fluency in music history, music theory, orchestration, uh, all quite frankly well beyond my own abilities. And uh, I think... They would both be proud to tell you that they are also formally recognized as musicians in the Kansas City Symphony. They are not staff members. This means they have all the same salary, benefits, rights, privileges, and protections as any other musician in the Kansas City Symphony. They serve on orchestra committees. They participate in community engagement. Uh, They even occasionally uh, serve on audition committees. 
They are in every possible sense uh, critical, valued, and indispensable members of our symphony, and that's why I am now absolutely delighted to welcome our principal librarian, Elena Lenz-Talley. Welcome, Elena. Hi, guys. It's, Hello, it's, Elena. It's great to be here. I've listened to every episode, and I love Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. And so, Elena, I'm going to start us off uh, with a little bit of a softball to let you get your feet wet, but in fact, how how was the weather the last time we played Firebird? Do you recall? <laughs> well, you know, this is an interesting question, Mike, because, of course, we play Stravinsky's Firebird Suite quite often. But what really comes to mind is the very first time Michael Stern was here as a conductor. This was well before he was mm. music director. He wasn't even a music director candidate. He was just a guest conductor. And so he submitted his program. This was years ago. We were in the Lyric. And on the program was Stravinsky's Firebird. So being a good librarian, I said, which edition, which version of Stravinsky's Firebird do you want to do? And he told me. So first day of rehearsal comes. And I am lurking by the backstage door waiting for Michael Stern, brand new <laughs> guest conductor, to arrive. And it's mm-hmm. 9.55 or so before the 10 o'clock rehearsal and in, in bustles Michael Stern. And so I'm, I'm trailing along in his wake behind him, and I say, good morning, maestro. <laughs> Is there anything you need? Do you need a score? Do you need anything? Oh, no, 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 I, I have everything we need. And then he turns around and he says, we're doing the 1945 Firebird, aren't we? It's like, no, maestro. <laughs> no, maestro, you told us you wanted the 1919 Firebird. Mm-hmm. We are doing the 1919 Firebird. So it's, it's funny, Mike, that you lead off with a question about Firebird. <laughs> Because in, in librarian land, Firebird is not a softball question <laughs> because you've got not at all. And Jason's laughing because he, because he may have had yep. similar experiences because, of course, you've got the 1909 Firebird, which is big instrumentation. We've never even done it here. And then Jonathan McPhee, who was um, a music director of Boston Ballet, took the 1909 version and did a slightly reduced instrumentation, which we have done, Stephanie, on your family series mm-hmm. for Firebird. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then there's a 1911. And not to interrupt your story, but for, for everyone listening, just to understand, all these versions, they have different movements in them, totally different music in some cases, different instrumentations. You can't just substitute one for the other without telling anybody. <laughs> That's right. In fact, you know, besides the 1911 Firebird, which we don't even own, we do own the 1919 Firebird. Because it is public domain, so when we play all the time. But Michael Stern's question about the 1945 Firebird, well, even if we wanted to own it, we couldn't because it's a rental. And so trying to conjure a piece of rental music from New York to the stage in five minutes in Kansas City the day of the first <laughs> rehearsal is even beyond my capacity. Wow. <laughs> okay, you just threw out a lot of librarian terms with like public domain and rental music and, and all of that. So I want to get to that. But first, I, j- I want to go back because you're, you're talking about being um, working with Michael Stern before he was ever a music director, before he was ever a candidate. How long have you been with the symphony here in Kansas City? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Let's see. I started as head librarian in the 1992-93 season. Mm. The season before that, 1991-1992, I was still a freelance clarinet player here in Kansas City. And the the librarian at that time, Gene Fielder, 
um, needed an assistant. And so I was hired. And I think maybe, I don't know, did I even have 10 hours a week of work? I was playing as a sub and an extra quite a bit. And I thought, oh, well, sure, why not? And then she decided in August of 1992 that she would retire. And, yeah. and so I became um, the, the first full-time dedicated music librarian of the Kansas City Symphony because Jean had been um, a, a pianist and a librarian. So I, I am the very first one. Wow. So about 28, 29 years, if my math is correct, you've been the principal librarian. That's exciting. So what, I mean, you just kind of mentioned um, that you were doing some work as, as a librarian, and then you became the principal librarian. Did you ever have aspirations any point before that of wanting to become a librarian, or was it something that you just kind of came into the job and realized, wow, I'm really good at this and I really enjoy doing it? What led you to make that decision that I'm going to transition my career in this way? Well, especially at that time, it was very unusual, I think, that any young musician aspired to a career as a performance librarian. Most performance librarians uh, were also part of the orchestra. And it's really only been in the past, maybe certainly 20 years, but maybe even 15 years, where there's been more of a career as a performance librarian. So to answer your question, no, I, I didn't aspire to it. In the words of my husband, Doug, a, a jazz player, a geek is a gig. <laughs> and so I was, I was freelancing and teaching clarinet lessons and playing gigs and playing as, a, as an extra and a sub with the orchestra. And, and the Kansas City Symphony had a job that came open. And, and so I thought, well, a gig's a gig. Let, let, let's try it. And what I, what, what I didn't know then, and I do know now, is that being a performance librarian is a, is a fantastic way to support music. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, ultimately, the goal of the performance librarian is so that the orchestra plays its absolute best performances. And in order for Mike to play his absolute best performance, if I work assiduously and continuously and continually, I can help him and I can help the conductors. Yeah. And I can help all of those 78 performing musicians on the stage. That's what we librarians do. And let's face it, Mike needs more help than the other Ooh. 77, We'll, we'll get to a story later, oh, okay. maybe more than <laughs> one, about some times I've needed help. Okay. <laughs> you know, Elena, I love that you say that, though, because you and I, I think... Um, got to our careers in a very similar way. Elena and I have a lot of similarities. We are both Texas girls and from like, not just like a, the, you know, the metropolitan parts of Texas. We're, uh, we're Denton, Texas girls. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but we're both clarinetists and I, we both really kind of ended up in the jobs that we have because somebody, I mean, in my case, somebody left the job and they were you know, looking to find somebody when I when I first got into doing education work with an orchestra, and I was just right place, right time, didn't have any training to do it, it the formal training to do it didn't have any experience doing it, but kind of fell into it and found absolutely the thing I was meant to be doing, um, just kind of by happenstance. And with Elena, it's I mean, it this job really feels like it was made for you just um, you know, the amount of knowledge that you have to have, but also, I mean, it's very detailed. Um, you have to, it, there's a lot of rule following, which I know you're doing a lot of <laughs> investigating into that right now, but it just, it's amazing to me because it really seems to suit your personality 
so well. And it's a job that, like like you said, didn't really exist in the capacity that you currently do it. Um, I just think that's really cool. So tell us about some of the skills uh, that are required to become a librarian and to be a librarian, you know, besides some of the things we've already mentioned, you know, we've, we've hit on a few already, but there's so many different things you need to know and be able to do uh, in your job. Tell us just a little bit about that. Well, having a good background in, you know, kind of the music academic subjects is really helpful music theory, because we'll have to do some transposition, or we'll have to um, do some cross-cueing. Maybe we don't have alto flute Mm -hmm. for that performance, and so I need to make it possible that Mike can play that alto flute on his flute. Um, We need to have a basic idea of um, orchestration, instrument ranges. I can't write something for Mike that he doesn't, you know, doesn't have on his instrument. We need to have a, a decent knowledge of music history because, of course, the the amount of rip there is in in our world. Just think about just symphony orchestra, let alone uh, chamber music. I mean, it is vast. I don't think a day has gone by since I took this job that I didn't learn about a new piece of music. Hmm. It just goes on and on and on, which does definitely keep it interesting. Um, in terms of um, kind of personality traits that help. I mean, Stephanie um, listed the absolute first one is you have to be detail-oriented. Because, Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly there's a big difference between having the up bow on the first eighth note of Mm. the measure and on the second eighth note of the measure. Mm. And so just in terms of even adding those hand markings to show when the string players change their bows, those are called bowings, those are one of the primary responsibilities that we, Fabrice and I take care of every day. I mean, we, we've got to get it right. You know, every minute of rehearsal costs money. There's a, you probably have talked about this in previous episodes, but there is a digital clock on stage. And there's only so much time during rehearsal. And so yeah. librarians, we have got to be on the ball for absolutely every piece of music we're preparing because time is money. And if I, you know, even if I proof, proofread something, checking every measure of every part against the score doesn't mean I'm not going to miss something because I'm human. Everyone's human. But the better job that we librarians can do in advance, the more rehearsal time that all of you have to make music. And that makes a better performance. So I think it's worth it for everyone listening to understand and we've we've mentioned this probably here and there over the course of our conversations in some context but um you know what elaine is referring to is the string players in particular uh if you've ever seen them play they don't just magically know uh how to coordinate their bows so that they're all bowing in the same direction at the same time so the it's the responsibility of the principals uh to decide uh, how how they will bow a piece of music. And then uh, it is the responsibility of our librarians to take their master part and hand copy uh, every single marking into everyone else's part. And a lot of times if we're playing off parts that we own, a lot of those markings will be in there already, but often they have to change uh, from what we did previously because we have a different person playing it that day, a different principal or a different conductor who wants something a certain way. So they're responsible for all that. Um, but I would love for you to talk a little bit more broadly too about 
sort of schoolhouse rock style. What is what is the life of a piece of music from you know where it where it sits ninety nine percent of the time either on our shelf. Uh, or with another publisher in the case of a, a rental piece, or if it's something we have to buy for the first time, what is the life of that piece of music from the time that we decide we're going to play it to it going through your whole process and getting to my music stand with all the markings and cuts and whatever needs to be in there, all the pages. Uh, what, what, what are all the steps? Because I think people who come to concerts, like I mentioned at the top, they see you come out, you hold you're holding the scores. You put them on the conductor's podium. You walk away. They don't. They don't really get to see or appreciate all the other work that goes on because that's really the smallest part of the job. Just sort of Van White style, you know, coming across the stage and putting the scores. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, I think it's worth mentioning that a good portion of a librarian's life is actually figuring out where to get the music. You would think that in this day and age there would be an Amazon-like provider that when when Jason is programming his, let's say, uh, Bach and Bourbon Uncourt concert, that, that um, you know, there would be a piece for, let's say, um, bluegrass band and orchestra, and there would be one-stop shopping. I'd know exactly where to get it. And there certainly are lots of um, databases and the all-important Daniels Orchestral Music reference book but you'd be surprised how much time and effort and energy is related to sourcing the music. We can get music from all over the world. And of course, some of it is rented, you referred to that, which means, believe it or not, that the only way to perform, let's say, Barber's Violin Concerto by Samuel Barber, is I have to rent it from Shermer. And every time we play it, we have to rent it from Shermer, just the way that that works. Even if we begged, they would not sell it to us. Can't be done. And so a fair amount of music on our classical series in particular is rental music. Now, in terms of the actual, what librarians call preparing the music. So let's assume that I burned the midnight oil and I figured out where to, where to get a piece of music. And I'll tell you an interesting story about that after I get through your schoolhouse rock. So now we have... <laughs> Now we have the music in the library. Now you would think in this day and age that no matter what it was, that music would come with um, zero defects, no mistakes of any sort or shape. Everything's good to go. Well, you know, if that was the case, I think I wouldn't have a job. Mike, I think they just make you do it in addition to, to, to playing true, the flute. Go on. <laughs> You know, I think I think they just say, hey, Mike, a, a box came from UPS. Why don't you open it up? Hey, can you pass that out? But un, but unfortunately, um, now that we have the music, that we either purchased it or we rented it, now the fun actually begins and where the librarian's job gets challenging and interesting because we've actually got to look at it and and look carefully at it and, and see, you know, are all the, the parts that are in the score are actually there. You would think that would be the very first step. It is. Doesn't mean they're all there. Are all the pages necessary for each part in each part? I check it. I check everything. By the time the music is either um, going back on the shelf or back in the box to go back to the publisher after the performance, I've handled every single one of those parts at least four times probably. 
and I've looked at every single page. Wow. Yeah. That um, even if um, it's it's a work that let's say it's a uh, a Mozart symphony that doesn't, and we and we have the preferred edition that Jason has requested, and it, it's essentially mistake free. Yes, we're going to coordinate the Boeing process, which starts with the concertmaster, and the concertmaster gets to 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 mark that first violin part, and that sets the stage, no pun intended, for all the Boeings thereafter. Principal second, principal viola, principal cello, principal bass. And then we copy those Boeings carefully. And of course, in pencil, because in orchestral music, just like in everything in life, things change. In fact, one of my absolute favorite things is when I've completed preparing a set of music, including all of the Boeings, and I've put the folders together and then for about at least three or four minutes, it's ready. And then, <laughs> and then after that, anything could happen. I'll get a call from the conductor. It's like, you know, I was thinking that movement is too long. I think it needs a cut. Or the personal manager calls and said, you know, you know, I just really, the stage is not big enough. We're not going to be able to have piano. What are we going to do about that? Yeah. So backing up just one more time with the Boeings, because I want to make sure everybody is just really clear on how this works. Um, Because you you say that we get a, um, in a perfect world, we would open up that box of music and everything would be perfect. Everything would be ready to go. And some, someone might wonder, well, why can't that just include the Boeings? Because if one orchestra does it, you know, why can't one orchestra bow it and then the Boeings just stay in? And why, you know, why do we always have to redo the Boeings? And that's because every orchestra, um, starting, like you said, with the concertmaster, chooses their own Boeings in their own style. Sometimes it comes from the conductor, sometimes not. Um, but just just to be really clear, so every orchestra has their own Boeing system and their own um, preferences, but you always know that Elena has been in the room bowing parts when you see like the the leftover like <laughs> shrapnel of eraser <laughs> bits. <laughs> yes, the- because she's been taking out other bowings and putting in ours. Yes, that eraser schmutz. Of- <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie sneezed me once a week at our, our departmental meetings and. <laughs> Have you ever seen me walk in there without a stack of Boeings? No, no never. I don't Mm-mm. think so. Yeah, I can actually listen and bow at the same time. You sure can. She's a multitasker. But what's funny is we have those, our, our department meetings on Monday mornings, and then we have an entire staff meeting on Monday afternoons. This is when we're able to be in person. And inevitably, we all come in there Monday after our morning meeting and it's like oh elena was sitting here i could tell <laughs> she was over here there's all the eraser bits i i try to clean them up stephanie i promise i do <laughs> i really do it just means you're hard at work well and uh, you know black is so slimming it'd be great if i could wear black every day but but black shows the eraser schmutz so badly <laughs> i have to stick to prints <laughs> so besides the boeing's uh, other important things that librarians are always on the lookout for and things we're going to fix as necessary, it's imperative that the music have a rehearsal system. And it has to match whatever the conductor's score has. Jason, how many times oh have you gosh. heard me say, you know, Jason, what score are you going to use for whatever piece yeah. we're talking about? Because it's all for yeah. naught if Jason's in the middle of a rehearsal and he stops and he says, 
oh, orchestra, back at letter, rehearsal letter D, I would really like you to play play as if, you know, there are fairies dancing in the meadow. And then every <laughs> single person on the stage looks confused because they don't have rehearsal letter D. So it, They're already confused enough by my analogy of the fairies in the meadow. And then they're confused because they don't, they're, they say we don't have a letter D. You're exactly right. There's measure numbers in some pieces. There's rehearsal letters or rehearsal numbers in this system that you're talking about. And you save my day all the time by figuring all that stuff out in advance and making sure that we're on the same page. So but like you said earlier, every single second of rehearsal counts, especially with a lot of things I do where I have like one rehearsal. And if we have to waste a minute or two trying to figure out where it is that I'm talking about in the music, we're in trouble. So you save me all the time. Thank you, Elena. You're welcome. I mean, that, that that's <laughs> the gig. Um, other edits we may have to put in the music, sometimes depending on the music itself, like for instance, Jason, when you did Vivaldi, Jason will mm -hmm. mark his score with all the dynamics and any any particular edits he wants so that I copy that into the music so that the musicians um, know how to prepare it when they're practicing at home and the rehearsal goes more smoothly. I mean, a perfect case in point of that is think of all the people who love to come to our annual performances of Handel's Messiah. You get the music right. for Messiah and um, the, the music at that time is essentially just notes and rhythms, and sometimes even notes and rhythms within brackets. And so, um, it, it, besides the Boeings, it is incredibly useful for the players to know what the conductor's intent is, and those are all the markings. As, as yeah. you would know personally, Jason. I do. So, Lana, you worked on a really interesting project a little while ago that I'd love for you to talk about. You commissioned a piece, a song called Come and Sing a Song with Me uh, by a wonderful composer named Gary Fry. And uh, we all premiered the song in uh, a series of children's concerts. And it was just incredibly moving for me uh, that you had the passion and the commitment and the energy to see this through and bring an incredible piece of music into the world for children and orchestral musicians anywhere to enjoy. And that's really the most beautiful thing about it is that it's for everyone. So please share a little bit with, with us about that. To give you a little bit of, of a backstory, my father and his family immigrated to the United States from Cuba in the late 50s. And so I've always had um, a real interest and a, and a, and a passion for music of, of Latin America. And in my chamber music group, the Lyric Arts Trio, one of our really popular programs that we do is called Music of the Americas. The idea that we are one big neighborhood. We've got um, the Canadians to our north, the United States, Central America, Latin America, the Caribbean. You know, we're, we are all one world. We're all neighbors. And so being a good librarian, I went uh, um, to Stephanie and Frank, and I had Frank Byrne, our executive director at the time, and said, I had this great idea, in my own view, a great idea of a, a program that we would do for children, the educational concerts where we bring school kids into the theater, um, a multicultural program based on this exact theme. We are all neighbors. And I had a whole bunch of repertoire that I had researched that we could do music of Latin American composers and African American composers in the United States. 
And I said, I thought something that'd be really meaningful and make it even more effective would be if there was a piece of music that the, the kids could perform with us. And I said I would commission it, and I, and I did. So in, in honor of my father, Julio Garcia Lentz, and his, his brother, who had recently passed away at that time, Ramon Garcia Lentz, um, I wanted to commission a piece of music with lyrics in English and Spanish that would be about essentially, um, we are all in this together. The same sun shines on all of us, regardless of what color your skin, where your mom and dad came from, what language you speak. Um, we, we are all in this together. And I um, gave it a great deal of thought. In fact, I have to attribute a lot of this inspiration, um, and this is a very Cuban thing to say, to my grandmother who is, who is deceased. Because we, in our family, we all think that my grandma Ida, my dad's mother, um, kind of speaks to us, inspires us. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things where, and Stephanie, I bet you've had this experience too, where you wake up in the morning, it's like, that's it. I've got it. Mm-hmm. That's it. And I had had a long conversation with composer Gary Fry when he was in Kansas City for the uh, major orchestra librarians conference that we hosted here in Kansas City. And and it was com- com- clear that he and I thought about music and its role in the world in, in the same way. And so he was my first choice of composers to collaborate with. And, and right from the get-go, he was, he was all in. And one of the stipulations I had from the very beginning was that we were going give, to give away this music to anybody that wanted it. Mm-hmm. It is copyrighted uh, to Gary and actually uh, to me and Stephanie, too, because of the, the, the lyrics. Um, but the, the deal was we were going to give it away, and I am giving it away to anybody who wants it. I've sent it all over the world. And the other thing I knew that Gary would do so well was that he was going to be able to write a tune, and he did, that you hear it, and not only is it fantastic, but it's kind of like, wait a minute, don't I know this? Don't I know this tune? Yeah. That, that he has that knack that, that it just kind of like mainlines right in. And, um, and we worked um, very hard on... I worked very, in fact, it was summer of 2018. No, I guess it would have been summer of 2019, where Gary and I, I don't think a day went by without an email or two or some some phone calls back and forth. He would come up with a, an idea, and I would say, yes, I like it, but how about this? And one of the things I really wanted to do was to, to make the uh, piece so that just about any organization could do it. So you can do it with full orchestra the way we did it. Like if you have three flutes in this section and three trumpets. If you have an orchestra that is smaller, um, maybe one of the regional orchestras, and you only have two flutes in your orchestra, I made sure that Gary wrote the piece so it could be done that way. I had Mm -hmm. Gary write the piece so that if you want to do it with only piano accompaniment, you want to do it in your elementary school, on your spring program, you can do that. Do you want to do it in a church and you want to have um, guitar accompaniment? We have that. Gary is a saint. He did everything I asked and more. And it is a fantastic piece. And I think the, and again, the, the lyrics, Stephanie, they, they kind of did come to me in a dream. I still have the envelope 
that I woke up one morning and I wrote it all down. I think I wrote mm-hmm. you an email that day. You did. With all mm-hmm. of all my phrases and ideas. It's like, mm-hmm. it, it was all there. So, um, and then what we ended up doing was the version one of this piece is primarily in English with a little bit of Spanish in, um, in, a, in a couple of the mm-hmm. phrases. And then I said, you know, I think I'd like a little bit more Spanish, both for this particular program and, and you know, for myself. And, and Gary said, sure, why not? We got Alberto Suarez, who's our principal horn involved, mm-hmm. whose family is Cuban. They live in Miami. In fact, when I met Alberto for the same time, I thought he looked like Che Guevara. He had this big bushy beard. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Alberto and I are, 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 are kind of brothers and sisters in a way, that way a little bit. And Alberto was kind enough to help us with the translation. And then we actually, so that's version two, which is the one that we premiered and, and performed in October. And then we even have a completely Spanish version that Alberto did the entire translation, and that's version three. Mm-hmm. So we have all three versions and that was in my my dad and my my one of my sisters and her husband and my mom were here for the premiere and my dad is a man who doesn't show a lot of emotion but he he said it was the right way to honor his brother mm-hmm. to honor the family so it was a, and Gary of course was there with us um, we did the rehearsal and I cannot tell you I mean right on up there with giving birth, that was one of the thrills of my life, to hear the orchestra play that piece the first time. Mm-hmm. Because because there it is, complete. Mm-hmm. And I was so grateful, Stephanie and Jason, that, that you were willing to have me uh, be the backseat driver and program this piece. You, honestly, when you, when you commission a, pe- a piece of music, you pay your money and you take your chances, right? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it, it could be a piece of music that takes off and gets played over and over and over again, enters the canon. It could be a great piece of music that, that you play once, and then it sort of languishes on a shelf. It could happen. We can all think of lots of repertoire that's like that. But I, I think this piece has legs. I think it's gonna yeah. I think it's gonna go. And I certainly I'm keeping a spreadsheet of all the organizations that have asked me uh, for the piece and I'll be excited to see where it goes. And I think we can help children learn through music. I think this piece is a great example. And that singing is an incredibly powerful experience. And that communal singing with everyone together, something magical happens. You can feel it in the air. Couldn't you feel it when we were doing, Absolutely. doing the piece? Oh, without a doubt. And that all of those kids singing together. And my dad was so thrilled. We we stood out in the lobby um, outside Hellsburg Hall to watch the kids come in off the buses and come in the hall. And, and we saw just about every shade of the rainbow, which was the whole yep. point. Yep. And, and he, was, he was thrilled. Music is for everyone. Music is for all of us. And, and my hope is that those kids, and, and not only singing, performing with the Kansas City Symphony, but working on it in their classroom with their teachers... And maybe singing it in the back seat when mom picks them up from school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in any way that maybe we as an organization or me as an individual are going to, you know, send that piece of music out there into the world. I think that even saying the words 
about you know the the sun shines on all skin of every hue i think it it helps transform us on some really small way and small ways are where we get to big ways absolutely well i just want to say that not only was it a beautiful song um you know elena you are one of my favorite people that i get to work with at the kansas city symphony you help me tremendously all the time with programming with markings in music with suggestions, with ideas. Um, and so I always appreciate you and I always have so much admiration for you. But when you came to us with the idea of that program, and then especially as we got to see Come and Sing With Me take take life and, and when the lyrics were added in, and I got to see that part of the process along the way too. You know, how about this melody? Maybe this. Um, my admiration and love and respect for you went through the roof with that project. And so thank you very much for bringing it into the world. And I could not possibly agree more that music is one of the most powerful ways that we can change minds and transform people. And like you said, it, it comes in small ways like this, but I, I think that this is actually a big way. I think that's a huge way. And I can't thank you enough for, for bringing that into our world. Well, I mean, it, it was my pleasure. And like I tell, tell my kids to make a practice, music sends beauty out into the world. I mean, at the end of the day, whether I'm working as a librarian or, you know, performing in my chamber music group or nagging my kids to practice, I want us all to, to send beauty out into the world. And the way that we do it is through music. Yeah. Well, Elena, there's another way that you send beauty out in the world, and that is through your baking. You're an excellent baker. <laughs> so normally we ask um, on this podcast, what is your favorite drink? And I, I do want to know that. But I also want to know what your favorite thing to bake is. And maybe maybe a two-part question. What's your favorite thing to bake? And then what's your favorite baked thing to eat? And also, uh, what is your favorite drink? Ah, <laughs> uh, Okay. Maybe I'll work backwards if that's okay with you. I'll start with the favorite Please. drink because that'll be fast. I'm not a big drinker. I just never have been, never never gotten into it. But especially this time of year, a mojito sounds good, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, something, yeah. something refreshing. And I'm a gardener, so if you need mint, I have the mint. <laughs> now, as far as baking things, I do love to bake. And I love to bake both for the, the act of baking, but I mean, come on, let's get real. After I bake something, I get to eat it. <laughs> and and um, my absolute favorite thing to bake is something with chocolate. And one of my things I love to bake, I love Dory um, Greenspan's cookbooks. They're all fantastic. And one of her favorite recipes, and it's kind of taken the world by storm. You're going to know it the minute I say it, is the World Peace Cookies. Have you guys made those? No. They are they are so good because they're very buttery, but a little salty. And then you've got the chocolate in there too. And I should issue a caveat at this point saying, okay, no angry phone calls about this, but the dough is as good as the finished product too, so that mm. you can maybe... A little quality control, you know, try it and then bake some. And wow, those are some of my absolute favorites. And I think I have all the ingredients in the house to make them. So I think that I might have to take a baking break this afternoon. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and a uh, final question for you. What would you ask Beethoven if he were alive today? Well, 
Beethoven lives in our music library in a couple of different formats besides the printed music format. I have a Beethoven action figure, yes, with a little <laughs> piano bench. And then I have this really kind of creepy Beethoven where you can put things in his, his mouth, kind of like maybe like a memo holder or something. It was a gift from one of my good friends, and it, it is a little creepy, but right now his, his, conver- <laughs> his conversation balloon says, my music is all public domain. That's, that's, that's nice. what he's seeing right now. <laughs> but an- Which is a good thing. Another one of the my favorite parts of the library, something I have in there I'm very, very fond of, and you've all seen it, is the life-size cutout of Dolly Parton in all of her glory. Oh, yeah. You've got the makeup, oh, yeah. you've got the hair, you've got the nails, and she's holding her auto harp. And, you know, I kind of think that maybe when the library is dark, and the doors are locked, and no one is there. That maybe Beethoven and Dolly, maybe you know, are having a little conversation. So, so, so maybe I wouldn't actually ask Beethoven anything. Maybe I would just say, um, Ludwig, I've got a friend. She's fantastic. I just want you to meet her. You know, keep an open mind. I think you have a lot in common. I think you know, you guys can have a a good time. It wouldn't have to be anything serious. So maybe I'd introduce Beethoven to Dolly. <laughs> Elena Lenz Tally, principal librarian and principal matchmaker of the Kansas City Symphony, ladies and gentlemen. I love it. All right. Well, we uh, have come to our uh, fun part of our episode now. Way back in episode 12, we did our first ever segment of Around the Horn with our good friend and principal horn, Alberto Suarez, who Elena mentioned earlier. Uh, And we had so much fun that we decided we're going to put each of our future Kansas City Symphony musicians through this same gauntlet of rapid fire questions to see who comes out on top. Uh, We decided to call this new segment, I mean, Around the Horn made sense for Albert because he was a horn player and we were talking all things horn. But uh, we decided to call this new segment Bar Talk. Since this is Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, not to be confused with Bela Bartok, the composer, B-A-R-T-A-L-K. And uh, just a refresher of the rules here, guys. I'm going to ask a series of questions. You're going to have about 15 to 30 seconds to answer. I'm going to award your deeply meaningful and life-affirming points with good ans- for good answers with a little bell ding that'll sound like this. And if I don't like your answer, you're going to get a loud, obnoxious horn, which sounds like this. So every time you get a ding, you'll get a positive point. Every time you get a uh, horn, you'll get a negative point. And today, all questions will have to do with the duties and functions of our wonderful orchestra librarians. Um, So I'm going to ask these series of questions. Tim, our audio engineer, is going to keep track of the points. And as a reward, if you win the game, we will hear your recommended listening for this episode. So are you guys ready? I'm ready. Let us begin. Here we go. First question. Tell us in 30 seconds or less about the worst sheet music mishap you've ever had or seen in your career. We're going to start with our guest and principal librarian, Elena Lenz Tally. What's the worst sheet music mishap you've ever seen, Elena? You should have a good one. Trombone player in the Kansas City Symphony bringing his part to a piece of rental music in a Ziploc bag because (laughs) his dog had ripped it to shreds. (laughs) The dog ate my homework. (laughs) The dog ate my rental music. Wow. 
<laughs> All right, Stephanie, what's the worst sheet music mishap you've ever seen or been a part of? Well, I was certainly a part of this one, and it was when I was working with the San Antonio Symphony in Texas as the education manager. And the um, we had a concerto competition, and the winner of that competition was playing the third movement of a Prokofiev piano concerto, I think. Um, and I told the orchestra and the library that she was playing the first movement of the concerto. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was a big no. So when we showed up to rehearsal, um, she played her first notes and the orchestra played their first notes and they were not the same. Um, fortunately, when you play a concerto like that, all the parts are in the same, it's like in the same part. So it's not like we had to go back and, and find parts. They just weren't bowed. And of course, this sweet 15-year-old student was like thinking she did something wrong. And no, it was 100% my fault. So go ahead. Wow. Just give me the buzzer. I understand. That's an epic, epic fail. Yeah. All right, Mike. Same question, Mike. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, I can remember, I think it was way back in my second season with the Kansas City Symphony, playing a concert, and the, the concerto on that concert was the Elgar Cello Concerto, and uh, I went out on stage for the performance, and I realized just you know a minute or two before the concert was about to begin that my part for the Elgar Cello Concerto was not on my <laughs> music stand. And I didn't recall taking it anywhere, and I didn't know why it was missing. I just knew that it was missing. So I there wasn't much time, and I tried to get Elena's attention and managed to communicate to her that my part was missing, and that was about all we could do before the overture started. So through the whole overture, all I'm thinking is, and I wasn't tenured at this point, by the way, so all I was thinking is, oh, God, what is going to happen when this overture ends and we have to play the Elgar Cello Concerto, and I don't have a part, I don't know where it is. So Elena, being the hero that we've discussed through this whole episode, comes out with a score by the end of the overture, and not only a score, but the great, the one, the only, Raymond Santos, to turn the pages for me. So he didn't have to play that piece. He sat between me and the principal oboe at the time, Laura Schaefer, and he turned the pages of this score, and it wasn't a rather large score either, so fortunately I knew the piece well, uh, and I... I played probably half of that performance just from memory, but he turned the little pages of the score for me, and that's how I got through the performance. But I will also say, by intermission, Elena had acquired a part for me from another orchestra. That's a really good did. story, Mike, but I'm going to add like many horns here, because I said 30 seconds or less, and that was about eight minutes. Ouch. Okay, moving on to question number two. If you had to trust one section from either the woodwinds, brass, or percussion with string bowings, let's just say copying string bowings at the last minute, who would you trust and why? We're going to start with Mike with this question. Mike, who would you trust? Oh, definitely the bassoon section. <laughs> and why the bassoons? They're, they're very fastidious people with the reed making and the... Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like that answer. All right. Uh, Elena, what do you say? Mike, I'm going to call you. The double reed players are great. It's the oboes. Oh. I know so many great librarians who are oboists. Okay, good. I would trust the oboes. Stephanie? Do you know what's funny? My answer was the the double reeds because of the oh. reed making and the details. So I feel like I feel like I should win that point. I, I got well, them both. I just gave you two, but now that you're uh, begging for points, you're getting a horn oh. as well. 
<laughs> okay, moving on. Next question. Which composer, I like this one, which composer writes the most beautiful looking music, the most detailed, uh, they give you the most information uh, as the performer. Which which composer do you think writes the most beautiful looking music? For this one, we're going to start with Stephanie. Go ahead, Stephanie. All right. Well, I don't, in, in this point in my career, I don't look at a lot of music anymore these days. Some, but not a lot. So I don't really have a favorite composer, but I will say that anything Elena Lentz-Talley has worked on is stunningly beautiful and gives so much information to the performer that that is my answer. Wow. Those are four <laughs> brownie dings there for sure. Okay. <laughs> Mike, what do you say? Mike, which composer writes the most beautiful? Uh, it, you know, it's, it's gotta, it's gotta be Mahler. Yeah. Mahler has so much information for the performer. And uh, I mean, he uses the typical Italian words to describe things. He also uses a lot of German. So you got to know your German to read Mahler. But yeah, he definitely gives you a lot Mahler. of detail, sometimes perhaps too much detail, though, I'd say. Leaves a lot open for interpretation. Uh, Elena, what do you say? Which composer has the... You know more than anyone. You are the expert. You see so much music. Which composer do you think has the most beautiful-looking music, most detailed? Well, I'm not going to give you an answer you're going to like because I'm going to split this question up. Oh boy! Now the most beautiful looking music. Yeah, I love I love me a new set of Baronrider. Yes, Ooh, like a Mozart edition, a nice clean set of parts. You know, even the even the score looks awesome. Mm. Now the most information to the to the performer. You're right; it's got to be Mahler. But Mahler cracks me up. Mike, don't most of those German terms either mean slow or slower or slowest? No, that's the beauty of Mahler. <laughs> it's just, you know, but is it slow but like lovingly slow? Is it slow but depressed slow? Yes. I always yes. I always love yes. when Mahler says something like slow but don't drag but don't be in a hurry all in German. It's like, well, which of those <laughs> yeah, slow yeah. but not too slow but don't rush <laughs> but don't drag but yeah. Anyway, okay. Moving on, final question. What's the best thing about the orchestra library? Mike, we're going to start with you. What's the best thing about the orchestra library? This is an easy slam dunk, Elena Lenz Telly. Oof. Oof. <laughs> we'll give Mike a couple points for that one. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> Elena is definitely at the very top of that list. Uh, Stephanie, what do you think? What's the best thing about the orchestra library? Okay, well, I knew that someone was going to say that, and you're not wrong. That is the best, uh, along with Fabrice as well. But I will also add that the music library always has candy in it. They Ooh. always have candy down there in the satellite library. So always. it's not just a ma not just a matter of uh, magic pencils and erasers. There's also candy. That's a good answer. Oh, and okay. how could I how could I forget Dolly Parton too? She's oh, you and know, Dolly Parton. She's yeah, Dolly. Dolly Parton so, gets a, yeah, yeah, that's good. And finally, Elena, what do you think is the best thing about the orchestra library? The thing I, I maybe love most about the orchestra library is is all of the the print music, which goes back all the way to the 1930s and and seeing all of the markings in those parts by my predecessors, the other librarians and the individual players. And it just makes me realize that, you know, we're just mm -hmm. links in the chain. You know, think think about that orchestra rolling forward into the future, building on what everybody has done in the past. And I think that's so, it's always a cool moment to, to pull an old set off the shelf, especially something we haven't used in a long time. 
and you open it up in a, in a library and put great condition mm-hmm. 1965 on the outside of the folder and you see markings from a conductor who is, you know, no longer with us and uh, markings from, from players who've gone on to other things. And uh, Mike, is that kind of a cool moment when, when you open a piece of music and see markings from people who've come before you? Oh, yeah, I have certain parts where every time I get to, a, you know, one part in the music, I know there's a little note or a message or a something from one of my predecessors. Cool. All right. We are uh, at the conclusion of our game. Tim, our recording engineer, has been keeping track of the points. There were a lot of dings today. Lots of great answers. I didn't have too many <laughs> horns. So let's see. In third place with five points is Mr. Mike Gordon. Ooh, he went s- from first to the worst. <laughs> That's right. He sure mm. did. In second place uh, with seven points, Miss Stephanie Brimhall. <gasps> and in first place today, the champion of champions, All our right. principal librarian, Elena lenz Tally. So Elena, <laughs> you get the final word. You get to give today's recommended listening. What would you like to recommend for our wonderful podcast listeners to listen to this week? Oh, I've got a really good one for you. So Ernesto Laquona was a pianist and composer known as the Gershwin of Cuba. And my dad happened to work on his TV show when, when he was a student in Havana in the 50s. And so you, if, do you know the tune Malaguena? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You heard that one? Yep. Yeah, yeah. That, that's Ernesto Laquona. Right. And that, uh, we had an album of Ernesto Laquona playing his own music. He was a pianist. And it's called Laquona Plays Laquona. I have a link for you. And that music just takes me back to, the, to my childhood. And it is fantastic. Summer listening with that mojito. Nice. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for being our wonderful guest today, Elena. My pleasure. It has been great to have you and learn all about the many facets of your job. I think all of us would agree that without you, we would all be uh, a ship in the middle of the night without any kind of direction at all whatsoever. Um, So thank you for making all of our jobs not only easier, but better and more enjoyable. We really appreciate you and we really appreciate having you as a guest today. Thanks, Elena. Oh, my pleasure. It was fantastic. I'm going to send you flute parts that you can bow just <laughs> to keep your skills up. <laughs> it's, it's all going to be up bow, Mike. And Jason's got nice. your pencils in the Great. mail, by the way. Yes. No, she's coming over for the mojito mint and the pencils together. <laughs> Thank you, Elena. Next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, we meet the biggest, baddest brass instrument of all, the tuba. We'll play yet another round of bar talk with our principal tubist, Joe Lefevre, and get the lowdown on the lowest brass instrument in the band. Next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. 